Hello from Austin and welcome to the year 2023, not to mention episode 229 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday, January 2nd and definitely 2023. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Hello. <laughs> good year to you. Uh, good, good year to you, sir. I, I said good year, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great to get it, uh, an early start. Does this pretend that we're going to have lots of consistent publishing of episodes this so year? I, I, listen, I just want to tell everybody, Bobby, I, I, I don't. I, I will confess that I, I remain to be convinced that this is real and not just a, a New Year's resolution <laughs> mirage. But you know, Bobby is on the on the warpath when it comes to regularly scheduled recordings. We're here in my office. We're doing this, you know, live to tape. We even um, we even planned what we'd talk about a little bit, a little, little um, bit. right? And like, I mean, Bob, and Bobby wants to reorganize the format of the podcast. I mean, yes. like, you know, more frivolity. Um, no, that's not possible. <laughs> that's not possible. <laughs> but um, so you know, maybe I mean, here it is, January second. We 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 actually are recording on the very very first weekday, and it's not even a work day. It's a sort of a holiday. I, by the way, I'm confused about that because a lot of stuff here is open, even though it's a federal holiday. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little confused myself. Don't ask me. Like I, Sydney's I just, pre- just Sydney's, the dean. Like, Don't know. Like Sydney's UT preschool was open today. There are people, there are administrative staff in the building. Yeah, there's a few folks I saw when I came in. I don't understand it. That sort of stuff is decided centrally at the university. Okay. Not. Well, I mean, not I'm office. on the faculty council executive committee, and I have no idea what, what today is. This this could be our, our, our <laughs> respective uh, engagements for the year with the university. Like, why don't... Why doesn't everybody get the actual holiday? Well, it's also, I mean, we're on this, we're on this new academic calendar, um, which the there are lots of upsides to the new academic calendar. Yeah. We are about to feel the downside. The downside. Okay. How many faculty do you think just don't realize classes are starting a week or two earlier this year? I would say we have, what, 51 tenure-track faculty? You know, in any given time, there might be about 100 people who have an okay. assigned course. I'm going to say of the 100 people, assuming it's 100 people who are assigned to teach this spring, yeah. as of right now, as you and I are recording, there are at least... Eleven. Ooh, ooh, ooh that's, that's ouch. Who, that hurts. We're not aware that the first class is Monday. I was going to go with two or three, um, but it's oh, definitely it's definitely above zero. You, you expect people to read their emails? I know that's the problem. Um, but yeah, so so we are starting a full week earlier than uh, previously this semester, and this is our new calendar. So we're starting next Monday. I like to imagine that some of our colleagues maybe listen to the show, and sometime this week totally. they listen to this. Yeah, and be yes, like, yes. Wait, wait, wait. What? Bobby, the Venn diagram of colleagues of ours who listen to this podcast and colleagues of ours who pay insufficient attention to the academic calendar. Oh, that's zero. There's no, that's a null set. <laughs> I mean, there, there's no overlap. One of those might be a null set on its own. Um, yes, yes, yes. But, <laughs> well, fair. But so, so it's funny, right? Because even though today's a holiday, I think a lot of us are in prep mode because classes start a week Absolutely. from today. Um, it'll be nice in May. But, uh, yes. Yeah, graduations may say hey, graduation may be a little bit less hot than it has been. That might be nice. I mean, that would be amazing, yeah. but it's Austin in May. I, I, ho- I hold we'll no. I, 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 I make no assumptions. Are you saying that because it's like 73 right now outside? It's muggy today. It is a little muggy. It's going to cool off. Karen and I were talking about this. Like, we, we moved here in 2016, and, you know, we've had some brutal cold spells, right? We had the huge winter storm, sure. other things. We have memories of just about every New Year's Eve we can remember. We remember really nice weather. Yeah. No, like it's typically... You, 60s, 70s, clear. You'll get the occasional Arctic blast. It'll yes. come in, in for a few days. Yes. And, you know, you get to break out our sweaters and stuff. One of them then, came while we were away in December. That was that was actually... A, that was a cold one. That was a blasty. Um, okay. So you mentioned this idea of a new format. It's not 
too different, but my idea was... The, re- the National Security Law Podcast, the reboot. The reboot, yeah. It's, it's super 1.1, not, not 2.0. So the idea is just that uh, we would love you, dear listeners, to tell us things that you'd like us to go into teaching sort of deep dive mode on. Uh, whether deep it's dive. Yeah, you, know, you could be like the material support statute or IEPA or some case. The and shadow docket. The shadow docket, anything. <laughs> and and really, this could be stuff that's like occurrent, but it'd be great if it was also just the background of national security yes. law, just stuff you ought to know in this area. Yeah, and like each episode, we're going to have one like pre-planned, yeah, not necessarily current events-driven Right, teaching theme. Yeah. It's I mean, it's with my my Substack, right, with a newsletter. Yeah, like exactly. Every week, the, exactly. the the middle portion is something substantive as opposed to like just you know the the lightning round or the frivolity. Exactly. So the format huh. becomes in the news. It just occurred to me that the Substack. I, I set the Substack up exactly the way that our podcast what a, is set up. What a coincidence! <laughs> what a remarkable coincidence! Okay, so how is okay? So that's enough about the format. Yeah. Uh, send us your ideas Please. for things you'd like us to shallow or even deep dive on. Yes. Um, how's the Substack going? I, I'm having. I'm still having fun with it. I, I, I have no sense of what success is. Um, do you watch? Do you get to watch the subscription numbers? Yes, Are you seeing yes. those trending? Are yeah, they, I mean they're going up. Still um, hockey stick. Are you a unicorn of substacking? It's it's good. I mean the the it's not quite hockey sticking. Um, but it's it's. I don't know what success is in this context, other than yeah. like I feel like you know I'm not losing people. Um, today's actually today's issue is about the chief justice's year end report. Um, which I feel like could have been a little bit weedsy, but it, but it's gotten some good feedback on the socials. So if you're getting engagement, that shows yeah. people are engaged. You know, this reminds me of the early days on of, this not quite holiday. Well, remember when we first were blogging, and, and the, the audiences <laughs> were blogging. small, but you would occasionally get feedback, and yes. you realize that people in relevant positions right. were finding finding it useful enough to read to engage with. So if you're getting that from the Substack, right? You're on a, you're on a panel at the at, you're on a panel with hey like then DC Circuit Judge Kavanaugh and like oh I read your post <laughs> it was totally wrong <laughs> <laughs> that was just implied that was, that was, I think I was there and I if I, I might even have been moderator if. It, um, when, 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 he, when he said, when, when, so, so there's a panel, I think, was it here, right? Like the, I don't know, but there's a panel yeah. where Judge, then Judge Kavanaugh is on a panel with like Judith Resnick and me and two other Fed Courts luminaries. And I think it was double ALS 2012 and yeah. it was in D.C. Um, and and he's, he's beginning his remarks by saying nice things about most of the other panelists. He says, you know, I learn and uh, I try to cite to and learn from all of your work. And then he looks at me. He's like, and then there's Steve. <laughs> And I said, but see. But see. <laughs> um, I know you're you're not going to be at ALS. Uh, True. F- friends, the uh, the annual gathering of law professors takes place once a year in every January. Doesn't that sound thrilling? The I know. annual it's, gathering it's of law professors. Whatever you're picturing, it's pretty much exactly like that. <laughs> um, but it's going to be fun. And if any of y'all are planning to be at said ALS. In, in San Diego. In San Diego, uh, definitely let me know. This week? Yes. Um, so, fun. I, you know, I... I, I am not going not because this is about to be a triple negative. I am not going not because I don't enjoy it. Like like all things being <laughs> this equal, is, this is like Shrek when they're when uh, Charming's interrogating Gingy. <laughs> all things I being, do not not know where he isn't. All things being equal, I would love to go to Double ALS. It's a, if nothing else, first of all, the panels are often very interesting. But second, it's a great way to see lots of people who don't otherwise get much of an excuse to see, and especially on the far side of COVID, it's been a while. Yeah. Um, the the calculus is little kids, right? And so, like traveling uh-huh. with little kids, or tra- traveling without little kids. Right, right. There's there's ups and downs, whichever way you slice yes, it. Yes. So you will not be at ALS, but uh, 
I'll be, I will be I will be thinking good thoughts from afar. Fair enough. Uh, so uh, our format today it's pretty much typical. We've got a handful of great topics and then some even better. Well, frivolity. you're you're assuming they're great. They're they're yeah. topics. They're, they are topics. So we'll let the audience judge that. <laughs> uh, first of all, we'll have a little bit of a SCOTUS report. Mm. SCOTUS report. Uh, Arizona versus Mayorkas. And uh, we, we really need better. These cases, man, are going to start like Arizona versus Mayorkas is actually that's like 50 cases to Arizona versus CDC. And they're about the same thing. And they're different cases. Okay, this no. is going to be hard to track because Arizona is first in alphabetical order among this coalition. We'll get there anyway. Well, we got that. We'll do a quick touch base with that. Then we'll uh, check out the one train that always manages to leave the station in Congress, the NDAA. Mm -hmm. We have a new one. Uh, it's been signed into law, the fiscal year 23 NDAA. So we'll check in on anything that jumped out to us uh, from that. Uh, one big thing jumped out to me that got left out. Oh, what's that? Uh, National Guard reform. We'll talk about it. Oh, okay. And the thing I'm going to talk about has to do with uh, some tweaks to authorities that Cyber Command uses mm. for its uh, non-defensive uh, activities. <laughs> you like that? This, this is this is our our our, our double negative day, triple negative. <laughs> That's got to be the show title somehow. This is not. This is not, not a, a double ne negative. This is not. Episode. This is not a triple negative. <laughs> um, and <laughs> last, there was a uh, statement released or a report issued at the end of the year by CENTCOM, Central Command, and then picked up by Dan Lamoth at the uh, Washington Post, talking about yes, the ongoing combat operations and the scale and intensity of ongoing combat operations in Iraq and Syria. Of course, huh? Uh, what? Could it be? It's twenty twenty three. Is that still a thing? But that, uh, no, that was all over, right? Right, right, right. No, no, it's not over. So we'll we'll check in on what actually is still happening, including detention and use of lethal force and other such war related things. Um, and then frivolity. We got some good frivolity, Steve. We have a couple of. We're, we're going to avoid sports ball mostly because I really don't want to talk about what happened on Saturday afternoon. Um, oh but, but, no 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 no! But, <laughs> that was but we had this. We had the, we my had Michigan this cheering fan. We had we had this plan to talk about um, the best. Uh, sorry, the the most parent uh, uh, attractive Disney movies. Okay, and then also um, live albums, uh, okay. live live recordings of songs that are better. I in have the not. Live album I have version. not planned the second part. I didn't really plan the first part. So it's exactly. Fun. Well, I'm, I'm likewise on the Disney ones. All right, that'll make it more fun. Okay. Uh, as you can see, we've prepped thoroughly. That's <laughs> not nothing's really changed. We resolved to just record more often. Okay, uh, how many times will we record in 2023? I'm going with 30. Under. Going under. That's that's okay. I'm writing this down. <laughs> I actually wouldn't be surprised if we make it to like you know. I mean, Bobby, we put it on the calendar. It's actually now on part of my official schedule. I, that, I sent you a calendar invite for yeah, that very that, reason. That stuff, it goes on the calendar. If, if, <laughs> if, if it stays in the calendar, that's <laughs> so, so 30 means more than once every other week. All I'm saying is, like, that's ambitious. Yeah, I, I think we got it. All right. Um, all right. So let's start. Uh, by the way, my, my, my guess is, like, 22. Uh, you, you'll be close. So you're not saying, like, single digits. I think we'll do better than last year. This is like, uh, we're not going to be a bi-monthly recording. <laughs> I mean, we had moments. I mean, you, we say that now, and yet, once the semester starts. I, I think we're going to get 30 or more episodes, mm -hmm. and we're going to end up with more than 20,000 uh, downloads big per episode. Work, big, we're like in the mid-teens now, despite the way we've been the past year, <laughs> with any enhanced effort. Of course, a lot of it's dependent on the news, as yep. you know. Yep. Um, so, and, so, so everybody, please go make some news. <laughs> please, please don't. Please do not. All right, Supreme Court. 
Oh what, yeah. Oh, what's you know, going we, on with we, should, we, we should also talk about that. We should also talk about the January sixth report. But we'll get there. Oh yeah, here. I'll um, make a note. So the Title Forty Two. Okay. So um, first, I want to say Title Forty Two is the stupidest name for a policy in the history of policies. Um, <laughs> I agree. It's not the most illuminating term. So someone, someone on uh, I think it might have been Will Bode tweeted a couple weeks ago when this was starting to get some news. Like, is it really called Title Forty Two just because it's Title Forty Two of the U.S. Code? I'm like. Yes, Will, it really is. Can't we at least do the section number? So it's section 265, if you care, or section, was it 362 of the Public Health Act of 1944, depending on how you like to slice well, it, it. Can't they just call it like the, the, 265 the CDC, policy? you know, emergency intervention? Uh, it's all just, it, there's many, many ways. Yes, but instead it's Title 42. All right, Title 42. Um, I'm going to call it Title 42 because everyone else does, but I, I, I just want my objection noted yes. that I'm doing this under protest. Okay. Okay. This game's um, been played under protest. So Title 42 is a policy that was adopted by the Trump administration shortly after things got really bad with COVID in March of 2020. Um, and it's based on a pretty specific provision of the Public Health Service Act of 1944 that, as updated and delegated, gives to the CDC the power to... Um, prevent from entering the country individuals who are suspected of carrying communicable diseases where their entry might pose a risk of the spread of that disease into the United States. Basically, it's like a um, it's a quarantine slash removal authority, right, tied to fear that incoming migrants pose a public health threat. And is it fair to say, and, and here I'm consciously striving for sort of an abstraction yeah. of the dynamic yeah. that has implications for other aspects of more core national security law. Is it fair to say that one way to understand what's going on here is it's, an, it's a delegation of authority from Congress that empowers an executive agency acting under that delegated legislative or Article, Article One authority mm -hmm. uh, to issue rules that thereby uh, override and, and supersede any other uh, source of law that otherwise would have required certain actions, such as treaty obligations yep. or customary international law obligations or, or, or other statutes, pre-existing statutory obligations. Yes. And and here, this this one one example of where that's kind of parallel is covered action authority and yep. the idea that there are certain things that if it is a properly authorized covered action, there are certain. Uh, you have to comply with federal statutes. You have to comply always with the Constitution, um, but you don't necessarily have to comply with international law. And, and that's relevant here because there are a lot of refugee-related – there's a yep. huge amount of refugee-related implications in asylum law. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, yes, um, and indeed, the, 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 there are lots of things to say about this. The short version is the place where this policy has the greatest impact is asylum. Because it allows, you know, Border Patrol allows whoever the sort of the frontline officer is, right, to expel a migrant from the country, even if they would otherwise be legally entitled to request asylum. Um, and even if the relevant statutes and treaty obligations, right, would have otherwise required the United States to either detain that person pending their asylum proceeding or allow them to enter the United States pending their asylum proceeding. Exactly. It's, it's a sh it authorizes short shrift yes. is what it authorizes. Yes. Yeah. Or, it, or, a, broad so or a broadsword. Right? At scale. At scale. So, yeah. that, so that's the thing. So um, there was a lot of sort of protesting, right, when the Trump administration first announced this policy, that it was pretextual, right? That this was an administration that was looking for any possible way to shortcut the asylum process 
that it was just it was it was you know by March 2020 like the horse was out of the barn when it came to preventing the spread of COVID inside the United States like stopping people at the border but you know I, I think that's a matter of debate like whether whether it was a, a viable defensible exercise even if pretextual right in March 2020 I think is a a messy and not self-evident problem. That's right, because at the time, and, and this is the key thing, at the time, the stated justification for controlling the yeah. spread of communicable disease, you're, you're in the thick of, of a historic pandemic, um, which is a little different than today. today, which enters into the story. Yes, okay. So um, let me try to sort of shorten up the, the story a bit. So um, the Biden administration comes to office, and despite a ton of pressure from the immigration advocacy community, um, mm-hmm at first sort of reaffirms, right, Bobby, Title 42. Um, But then in April of this year, they reverse course and decide to at least attempt to rescind it based on changed circumstances, based on the view that, one, it was no longer actually accomplishing its goal. Two, there were other ways to, you know, deal with the the risk of um, immigrants and other people entering the country, right, carrying the communicable diseases. So in April 2022, the Biden administration proposes a rescission of the policy effective the end of May. Um, at that point, 24 red states, led alphabetically by Arizona, um, sue the federal government, um, and they sue the federal government to block the rescission of Title 42, um, rehashing many of the same arguments that were used to challenge the Trump administration's uh, rescission, or at least attempted rescission, of DACA. Right. The idea being that like the rescission of the policy had to go through particular types of APA process, um, that it was arbitrary and capricious, um, that given the crisis at the border, right, rescinding the policy would have massive negative consequences because it would remove one of the tools the government was using to actually expel on a categorical basis large numbers of incoming or attempted incoming immigrants. I, you know, it's let's zero in on that for yeah. a second. It clearly is playing that sort of role, or, or these, that's the framing of it. Yeah. But isn't that framing like flat out inconsistent with the justification? So, like if you yes. said like the reason we have this is because we've got to have somebody to control, at, as in El Paso at this moment, yes. right? This yes. this extremely problematic situation given the volume of people coming over the river. It's a real problem. It yes. does need to be addressed. Yes. But if you concede that that's why you're using Title 42, isn't that the same thing as saying we don't actually have a public health reason? We have this other reason. Right. No, no. And this is this. So this is exactly you have now gotten all the way to Justice Gorsuch's dissent. I have. I, I kind of want Gorsuch and Jackson. It's a it's a hell of a duo. Um, well, they're both right. Um, so so spoiler alert: Gorsuch and Jackson are going to dissent. Um, so. There's one other piece of hubris, right, to the suit, which is that the elected officials in these states who are leading this charge are in many, if not most cases, Bobby, the same people who are publicly arguing loudly that the COVID pandemic is over, right? And that the sort of the time for COVID mitigation measures has passed us by. But are they, are any of them actually arguing that there's, are any of them saying other than what I was just saying, which yeah. is we, we? I know they're saying like this is a disaster on yeah. our borders. We need to deal no, with. No, they were also trying to. So are in, they trying to the claim briefs. like this is a public health? Yes, in okay. the briefs, absolutely. Yeah. Well, of course, because because otherwise it's like you really can't right. You're possibly up the ghost. win. Right. Um, okay. So and, and they succeed. They persuade a federal district judge in the Western District of Louisiana, which has become one of the new preferred turfs for litigating against the Biden administration. Um, so they persuade a federal district judge in the West of Louisiana to issue a preliminary nationwide injunction 
against the rescission of Title 42, it leaving was, Title 42 Was that place. based on APA, a pers- a, a possible it, APA yes. inconsistencies? And doc- so, the, like so failure, the to, failure, yeah, so failure to follow the forms. It's not that you can't change your policy, right. but you've got to go through certain procedural right. uh, Which is ironic in this case, especially because the original rule was issued as an emergency rule in the concept of public health author- emer- emergency. And so the sort of the gravamen of the district court's injunction is that the Biden administration had to go through a heck of a lot more process to rescind the rule. So it's a finger trap. Then the Trump administration had to promulgate it. It's yes. a finger trap. Yes. You, you can put your fingers yes. in easily. You can't yes. get them out easily. Okay. So that's suit number one. The federal government's appeal of the injunction is in the Fifth Circuit. It is pending, but it is it has not yet been argued. All right. Now there's a there's a second case coming from totally the other direction called Huisha Huisha versus, I guess it's now Mayorkas. Um, right. And this is the lawsuit you might have expected. This is the direct challenge to Title 42. Right. Saying that, like, no, that the emergency conditions don't. You, you have to repeal right. it. Policy bad, yeah. right? Policy bad, right? On both procedural right. and substantive grounds. Quickly, where is the administration officially, or do we really know, like, where, which way do they want it to come out at Well, so, so one of the stories here, right, is, and, and one of the things that is going on um, is, um, I think the Biden administration, first of all, I think the Biden administration on this especially is a they, not an it. For sure. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think that part of what's going on and part of what I think the Supreme Court did last week reflects frustration with the Biden administration for not being more, um, for sort of, for hemming and hawing, right? For sort of, for for for, for half measures. A, a good example of this being the Louisiana case, which is captioned quite unfortunately, Arizona versus CDC. Um, there was never an effort by the Biden administration to expedite that appeal. There was never a request for a stay, right, from the Fifth Circuit. The Biden administration could have asked the Supreme Court for cert before judgment, right, if they really wanted the merits of the rescission, right, before the court in a hurry. And so you could look at that and say, well, I can understand why politically, right, having Title 42 still in place is actually yeah. useful. So they're kind of like, oh, no, we've been blunted in our effort to retract this. Right. Oh, no. I mean, they're getting pilloried by right-wing media about immigration anyway, but uh, you know, presumably it would get worse in oh, a world sure. without Title 42. Well, look, I mean, the, event, the events unfolding in El Paso yes. in particular really have highlighted yeah. Although this. that's what Title 42 is still in place. Okay, so this is where the other lawsuit comes in because the Biden administration is not the only adverse party, right? So there are uh, so Huisha Huisha brought suit on behalf of a class of similarly situated, you know, uh, aspiring asylum applicants, right? Challenging Title Forty Two on both procedural and substantive grounds. Um, the litigation took a while, went up to the DC Circuit, it went back, etc. But in um, November, right, early November, Judge Sullivan in the D.C. District Court um, issued a permanent injunction against Title 42. Um, and Sullivan, the, the Biden administration said, okay, fine, but like unwinding this is going to be a real hassle. So we need you to stay the injunction for five weeks to give us time to unwind it. Sullivan reluctantly agrees. Meanwhile, the Biden administration appeals the injunction of the D.C. Circuit, but once again, does nothing to, exp- right, does, doesn't hurry, doesn't yeah. seek a stay, right? Do- I mean, they get a stay from Sullivan for five weeks. They don't seek a further stay, right? They don't seek expedited review. They don't right. seek, seek cert before judgment. Shortly, at, uh, early December comes along, and now 19 of the 24 states from the first lawsuit bring this motion to intervene uh-huh. in the D.C. Circuit in the second lawsuit, basically saying the Biden administration is not doing its job defending this lawsuit. It's not trying to actually hustle this appeal up. You need to let us intervene so we can do it. Um, a remarkably diverse D.C. Circuit panel, I think, I'm trying to remember, it was Pollard, Walker, and 
either Pan or Childs. I want to say Pan, right? But like Justin Walker, right? Like, yeah. you know, yeah. no no one's idea of a Biden administration sympathetic liberal, right? Unanimously denies the motion to intervene on the ground that it was preposterously untimely because the states had known for a long time, partly by dint of their own litigation, that their interests were not aligned with the Biden administration, right? This case had been in the D.C. Circuit for a long time. Like, you know, they had just basically that like they had sat on their rights for way too long. And so a procedural reason why they shouldn't be allowed to intervene. So could could the states not argue, and presumably they did argue, that look, we've been watching it carefully. It's a big deal to intervene. We didn't want to do it. Our patience in not trying to intervene shows us trying to be respectful. It's only when it became clear, like, look, they just don't seem to know how to or want to litigate the case. We finally felt our hand was forced. So the problem is, is that Texas in particular had already made some of those arguments about 10 months ago. And so the D.C. Circuit's sort of cryptic order says, like, if nothing else, you guys were on notice by then. Yeah. Right, that like this was going to be a serious problem. Is there a prior example of it? I'm troubled by this yeah. notion that when it comes to what is ultimately a question of policy yeah. for the executive branch of the federal government regarding how it wants to operate under the delegated authorities from Congress, right. I'm troubled by this notion that states can decide that they don't really like the vigor with which the litigation's unfolding, and therefore states, because this is yes. a tool that can cut in any yes. direction politically, ideologically. Yeah, no, no, right. They just the outside separate government entities can come in and say, like, well, we think we're going to have to do so, this. So for this you. was this was, so I wrote about last week's issue of of one first, um, right? Was all about this, right? And what I wrote about was whatever you think of the Title Forty Two policy, this is actually an even bigger deal. Because the intervention question yeah, goes I agree. far beyond. It seems like this a huge policy. federalism issue. Yes. All you have to do is reverse the polarity yes. and imagine the federal government right. purporting to step in and to say some laws. Texas Texas state implementation right. of Texas law, saying, "Look, you guys really just aren't trying hard enough." There's there are implications for the federal government here, so we need to take over the litigation. Right. Now, one counterexample, just to sort of, and, and I think it's an easily distinguishable one, but just to throw it out there because people might have this fresh in mind, is the most recent. Of the, th- the 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 in the trilogy of Affordable Care Act cases that go to the Supreme mm. Court, the third one, which by the time it got to the Supreme Court was captioned California versus Texas, right? What happened there was California intervened because the Trump administration refused to defend the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, and I think Bobby, there's a good argument to be made that. When the, when, the, when the executive branch has a statutory obligation, as it does, to defend the constitutionality of a federal statute, that's a different intervention question than simply a, we, we control our policymaking, we should be allowed to decide the vigor with which we defend that policy in court. Right. And I guess I should, I, I should add, too, that, of course, it's not a question of taking over litigation. It, it sort of has that effect. But the other, the the primary party remains, of course, able to advance their views. So, yeah. for example, if you had the view that uh, the reason we're not vigorously defending this statute in a given instance is that we have the firm view that it is unconstitutional, right. and we're not going to come to court and lie to you about our views on this, so we can't. Um, I think that is classically where you might see an intervener. You might see someone appointed. To- but because, but but let's be clear on why, right? Because ultimately, the question of the statute's constitutionality is not the executive's alone. Exactly. Right. As a Opposed yeah. to like, how should we exercise our discretion to enforce policies we chose to implement? Right, and so here it's not like the Biden administration is saying like, well, hold on, we we've come to the view that the order was unconstitutional ab initio. We never should have gone down this path, and we can't in good faith represent this. It's like, no, they're they're they've got their policy position, right. which is driving this. Right. They have their politics that they've got to right. manage, which is complicating right. this. Right. But no one's claiming that the, they're not claiming that they can't go forward at all. No. 
So then comes then comes the, the Supreme Court yes. and, and 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 shadow docket time. Um, uh, we need we need a we need a vocal for a shadow docket. <laughs> How's that? Spooky. That sounds spooky. Um, <laughs> we actually on 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 Halloween this year the the Texas Law ACS chapter did a um uh, a spooky shadow docket event. Um, oh, did they? Yes. Um, did you did you try to dress up for Halloween as the shadow so docket? Professor Escal wanted us to, but but that I declined. Is, what what would that entail? I guess just sort of a ghost outfit. I don't, I don't even know. Like with the like, docket with printed like, all with like, around with you. Like, with like sort of very thinly printed like light font. You know, yeah, yeah. Like Supreme Court decisions. <laughs> anyway, um, so the the nineteen states on the Monday of Christmas week, right? Go to SCOTUS, and they ask for an emergency stay, right? Pending the disposition of their um, sort of interlaced petition for certiorari on the intervention question. Got it. Um, And so on Tuesday, the Tuesday after Christmas, so because now we're up to the 27th. Just to translate into the practical consequences, Uh, they they wanted the Supreme Court to keep keep the policy in place while – the merits eventually bubble up through the well, sort process. No, but, but so, so well, let's be clear. I mean, there, there's another layer here, which I think. Oh yeah, um, not the merits even, just the intervention this, question. The, exactly, the that's intervention exactly question. right. Yeah. So, so the, the the application was saying, dear Supreme Court, please keep Title 42 in effect yeah. while you decide whether we should be allowed to intervene in the DC Circuit, so that we can argue for keeping Title, Title 42, 42 in, in effect. effect. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, on Tuesday, the 27th, the Supreme Court, by a five to four vote, granted the emergency application but really didn't say much about why. Um, In fact, the only thing that the court really said in the cryptic order that's not signed um, is that, like, the only thing they said was that we're not expressing any opinion about Title 42. Yeah, like, they Um, say the merits are pertinent, but not not part of the cert grant, right? Like, we are granting cert only on, like, how... Just the the, the naked question of under what circumstances should states be able to intervene to defend a federal policy? Well, the irony here is it's such a case, like, this is not a cert-worthy question here because the reason why the states lost below is so case-specific. Like, like, when you think about what makes a question cert-worthy, right, like, there's another... Something's got to hang on it. Um, something's got to hang on it, right? And and if the panel in the DC Circuit's right about untimeliness, then the actual question the states want the court to decide isn't properly presented. I, you know, so I guess the Roberts and others who were in the majority. So the, 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 we know the dissenters. That yes. Kagan, Sotomayor, Gorsuch, and Jackson. Yes. Um, the rest presumably would say, like, look, this question of this federalism style question yes. of intervention in general, yes. that's a super important question. It's still super awkward, though, that as Gorsuch and Jackson point out in their brief but but very clear dissent, <laughs> yes. um, at the end of the day, the pandemic has receded in well, so, the background in a way that can't possibly justify look, the, what Gorsuch and Jackson, joined by Jackson, what they say I thought was very piercing, which is that. There may well be, in fact, there I think there clearly is, a huge policy problem where either some combination of executive action or lawmaking action needs to come to grips with the scale of people right. You might think that you could border. say there's an emergency at the border. There absolutely is. But it's not a public health emergency yes. relating to COVID. COVID. Yes. It's a different kind yes. of public policy no, no, so emergency. This is, this is, to me, this is Gorsuch at his best. Absolutely. Just uh, right, clear. Just right. right but, the, but also, but all, not just clear, but like, I mean... His, his concern that I often don't share in cases about usurpations of executive power, right, are absolutely presented here. Now, mind you, I don't know how much of this is the Biden administration's fault since they're trying to rescind the policy, but, yeah. like, be that as it may. Um, 
Here's the problem for me, okay? I actually have two problems. Problem number one is, if you think this question is super interesting, and the court did, right? They, they had a case last term, Arizona versus City of San Francisco, presenting the exact same question, and then they end up dismissing that as improvidently granted. Bobby, there's a case the court is going to conference this Friday, Texas versus Cook County, that presents the exact same question. And so if it's the question you want, this is not your only opportunity to decide it. Indeed, the Texas case is arguably a better vehicle because it doesn't have the untimeliness right, problems right, right. here. But here's two, right? I don't see how... This is, so whether or not the states might win on the intervention question, that's still not enough for a stay. They have to show irreparable harm. And the question is, if, if, if there are not clearly... Five votes on the court for Title 42 potentially being legal, and I have a very hard time seeing how there are, right? Then how can there be irreparable harm, right? What is what is the harm to Arizona and the other 18 states from allowing Title 42 to expire if everyone now agrees that there's no longer a legal basis for the program? Well, and I guess that comes back to your point earlier, which is, I guess, in the briefs, they try to assert that, no, no, there's still a communicable, yes. communicable disease yes. proliferation problem, yes. which is pretty hard to square with circumstances. I mean- Well, at the very least, it's hard to it's hard to square that like the southern border is a unique locus of that problem. Well, if you can imagine a circumstance that is not our circumstance in the real world, in which, uh, for whatever reason, there's not current circulation of COVID at scale right. and in, now along the border, Mexico. and it's Central, well, it's Central American yeah. migration in yep. particular that's yep. coming through, yep. um, you can imagine it. That sure, it could be, but but no one can, I think, claim with a straight face that's actually what's going on here. And this is my problem, right? Which is like you know. I don't think the intervention question is worthy in this case in the first place, which ought to militate against a stay. But even if it is, I don't see how you get to irreparable harm without being – so the court disavows that it's taking a position on the merits. I don't see how you can justify a stay without taking some position on the merits. Well, and so what What I think I like the most about this dissent, which clearly I yeah. do like, Gorsuch and Jackson in with the line that effectively saying, look, this is clearly a public policy problem. But we are a court of law, not a, uh, a policymaker of last resort. Exactly. And, and I like seeing Jackson and Gorsuch side by side on that principle. Yes. So and I think that the only reason why Kagan and Sotomayor dissented but didn't join that opinion, well, I think there are two reasons. One, they've both written things previously in COVID-related cases that Jackson hasn't, right? And so they might have been worried about inconsistency. Two, I think for Gorsuch, this is teeing up where he's going to be on the student loan cases. Yeah, and they don't want to give any weight. And they, they don't want to be, weight. like, embarrassed by the... Uh... Well, because, but, I mean, to be clear, like, the student loan case, whatever you think about the student loan case, it's a different argument because the justif the COVID-related justification for the student loan debt relief program is not um, immediate sort of uh, prevention of the spread of disease, right? It's dealing with the economic consequences, which... They can still be there even if, and I don't. I'm not necessarily persuaded that's enough. No, but no. it's a different argument. They're I, not controlled by listen, the same thing. Listen, people are going to disagree about the student loan cases, right? I mean, I, that, that's fine. I just think it's not right. It's not the same thing. Yeah. And if people are wondering, like, why are you guys going on national security show? Why are you going so deep into this? A border. B uh, delegations of authority by Congress to the executive branch and how they might get exploited in emergencies, a, in emergencies or asserted emergencies. Yeah. In the abstract, it's very similar to topics we covered for more obvious reasons yes. earlier in this show's history during the Trump administration. And that's why I think and, and that's why I think it's fascinating to see Gorsuch go with the liberals and nobody else. By the way, we need to go back and dig up whatever happened in the various trade emergency cases. They, most of them died like with duds. Like mm -hmm. like but like there was a there was a big federal circuit case in one of them and then like the rest fell away. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that was interesting. We've got a lot out of two or three pages of uh, Shadow Docket. It's quite, it's quite a case. I mean, if, so if folks are interested in more, I will say last week, so the December 26th issue of One First does a lot more detail on this. Go check out One First. That's the substack to read. Uh, well, it's, it's one of them. There are better subsets. I'd get one, but you know, who am I kidding? I'm never going to have time to write anything. True. Um, letters for Amer- letters from an American. That's a substack to read. Hey, how about this? The NDAA. We got a new oh, one. that guy. And so, for those who aren't aficionados of the NDAA, that's the National Defense Authorization Act. Every year, this is one of the few bills that reliably gets enacted. And in the past six or so years, there's been some anxiety about that. And yet the train always leaves the station. Somehow. And it, uh, of course, touches on all sorts of things that matter to us on this show. Um, Steve, in a minute, I'll talk about a cyber command uh, authority question um, or, or development that I think is pretty interesting. What jumped out at you, though? What did you spot when you combed through it? I mean, there's a lot in here. There's the bizarre um, sort of uh, judicial spouse piece of it, which I think was an unfortunate late addition that didn't get enough attention that allows basically for secu- for, for completely understandable security reasons, um, allows spouses of judges to basically not disclose who their employer is or like other information that's otherwise required by like financial disclosure forms. Um, but the thing that I'm most exercised about in this year's NDAA is for the second year in a row, an amendment that the House passed that was proposed by Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill um, to reform National Guard authorities, basically to avoid, to prevent what Trump did in D.C. in the summer of 2020 from happening again. It it went through the House, um, and then it got excised um, out of the conference version. Oh, why is that, do you think? Um, I don't, I haven't heard the scuttlebutt. It is really unfortunate because it is such an obvious, easy fix. Basically, to make a long story short, the short version is um, there's, you know, National Guard troops, Bobby, wear three hats, right? There's the sort of normal state active duty hat, where they're under command and control, the governor. Title 32. So if I might, no, no? I'm going to quibble with you. No, state active duty status is not Title 32 status. 32 is when the federal government's going to pick up the tab. That's the hybrid. Even though you're in state command status. So sad status. I guess by definition, there is no title. Do we we not have a title shorthand for the pure state? There's no title shorthand. Because it's not a U.S. code topic. Exactly. So it's called state active duty or sad. It's sad. It is Um, sad. But so when you're in state active duty status, like the federal government has no interest in you whatsoever. Actually, there's a there's a case the Supreme Court's going to hear next week about how labor law applies in that context, but that's a separate issue. Interesting. Um, then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is what we what what you and lots of other people would call Title Ten status. This is when National Guard troops are formally federalized and so are for all relevant purposes part of either the Army or the Air Force, depending upon what they are. And then Title Thirty Two is the weird hybrid thing in the middle where they are paid for by the federal government and performing federal missions, but still under state command and control. And Bobby, there's a loophole, or not a loophole, there's a gap in Title 32 where the president can use troops he or she requests under Title 32 to do things that he or she can't use the Army or the Air Force for. For example, the Posse Comitatus Act, Ah. right, doesn't apply. And he can deploy those troops into jurisdictions that have not asked for them. Right, and so ah. in and so in the summer of 2020, President Trump used National Guard troops from 11 states, right, to basically send troops into D.C. Right. over D.C.'s pretty vehement objections. So the the Cheryl Amendment is this incredibly modest thing. All it says is that before the president can use National Guard troops in the state active duty status, or sorry, in the Title 32 status, he needs not just the consent of the state 
from which the troops have been requested. He needs the consent of the state into which they're being sent. That's huge. It, but it shouldn't be. I don't know why. So, so the Biden administration wrote this preposterous statement of administration policy, making noise that this would be unconstitutional. And I wrote a letter on behalf of a whole bunch of, of scholars and experts saying that is just sheer and utter nonsense. Well, let, let me, I'm trying to imagine the strongest argument for having a, uh, a for not having yeah. the uh, res- the territorial yeah. state, the receiving state, uh, having it having. Well, it if, if you're going to try to come up with the strongest arguments, you're not going to echo the SAP. <laughs> well, let me. I didn't see it, so maybe this is not something they said. But couldn't they be imagining some kind of think early republic kind of scenario uh-huh. in which the, the whiskey uh, the, rebellion? Wait, that's exactly where I was going with this. So imagine a circumstance <laughs> in which you don't really have a lot of standing federal military force. You have what you've got is the ability to draw on the state uh, national guard or then militia units. You've got a populist uprising in one particular state that's a huge problem. But the authorities there, just the governor perhaps, whoever the commanding authority is, uh, is cowed or even sympathetic and therefore is prepared to say no. If, if they have to say yes, they will say no. And yet it's in the collective national interest that the federal government be able to, uh, to intervene in that case. Wouldn't that be something where you, you just really wouldn't want the local governor to be able to say no? But if it's really that big a deal, then federalize and then you'd circumvent the whole problem. Right. And, and I think there's no the Whiskey Rebellion model, yes. certainly, I, I don't know what they actually did back in that very early circumstance, but under modern conditions, that would certainly be a federally funded that, no, no, Washington, and, and, full, well, and then fully federalized because Hamilton and Washington They took led the, the troops in the field. That was when Hamilton, you know, contrary to, uh, you know, I think how the musical has it all unfold, that was the one moment where Hamilton really got battlefield command and, and, and didn't actually get to fight because the, the enemy dispersed when it's, faced with Hamilton's forces. But so, so the Whiskey Rebellion is a perfect example, though, which is under the I, I'm about to out nerd even myself under the Column Fourth Act of 1792, right? <laughs> Washington was effectively federalizing the New Jersey and Delaware militias um, to go after the 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 you know the the the, the farmer militiamen yeah, in Pennsylvania. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so so the problem is right. The the actual sort of emergency scenario that folks are worried about, right? It, um, is it's not irrelevant because yeah. you just federalize that. Federalized. I think that's right. That's right. right. In fact, you surely. Would federalize of course in that you circumstance. Would. And and the Insurrection Act provides express authority that overrides the Posse Comitatus Act to do exactly that. Yep. Um, the the SAP made this really dumb argument about how it's it's not per, it's not appropriate to require a state's consent. But of course, in Title Thirty Two status, we already require a state's consent. The state from which Providing, the troops are requested. Right. The people where the soldiers and the equipment are coming. Right. From. And so, why, if it's appropriate to require one state's consent, is it somehow inappropriate to require two? Like that's that's it, anyway. The if if folks are interested, I the the there's a the letter about the the provision is on. I, I tweeted about it. It's it's online. It's it's available. But I was really disappointed that notwithstanding the really stupid sap and the response to it, it still got excise and conference. Hey, there will be an NDA next year. Maybe a force of your arguments. <sighs> third will, time, uh, third time's the charm. You never know. Well, uh, here's something that jumped out at me. Section 1511 ah, of the NDAA. An actual thing that got passed. Titled Protection of Critical Infrastructure. Ooh, sounds interesting. But it gets even more interesting when you read it, and I'm going to read it. So here goes. Uh, sub A, in general. In the event that the president determines that there is an active, systematic, and ongoing campaign of attacks in cyberspace by a foreign power against the government or the critical infrastructure of the United States... In other words, if you've got a foreign cyber attack that you can characterize as active, systematic, and ongoing, impacting the government or critical infrastructure, then, quote, the president may authorize the Secretary of Defense acting through the commander of United States Cyber Command to conduct military cyber activities or operations 
pursuant to Section 394 of Title 10 U.S. Code in foreign cyberspace to deter, safeguard, or defend against such attacks. Um, and, and the next part says Congress affirms that such uh, activities, when appropriately authorized, have to follow the procedural rules of Section 394. Um, so what's going on here? Well, it's obviously a a sentiment that there was some insufficient degree of clarity that Cyber Command at the president's direction could take out of network, you know, overseas, other people's networks, actions to try to fend off serious attacks. So like, let's say it's a ransomware attack. Now, why why might that not be clear? You would think that'd be pretty obvious that they could do that. Well, it's, it's interesting. There's a multi-year history through the NDAA over the years of Congress repeatedly coming up back to the question of exactly what should be said in advance about when Cyber Command can do things in foreign, uh, in what we call red space, in, in the enemy's own networks, or even gray space, in the, the, the networks of, say, some neutral third-party country where a server is located, where, say, the Russians have, you know, staged, have, have gotten access and they're staging an attack from there, or they're in op- conducting a, an operation from there. Um, several years back, there was a big attempt in what was in that year's NDAA called Section 1642, a big attempt to just settle any questions about whether there is power to go forth and conduct such operations. Um, And here's what that Section 1642 authority uh, required. In order to do just the sort of thing we were talking about, this pre-existing statute said there must be, quote, an active, systematic, and ongoing campaign of attacks, hmm, sounds familiar, (laughs) against the government or people of the United States. In cyberspace, it actually sounds broader, doesn't it, than critical infrastructure? Or does it sound narrower because it's people and not, not the things that actually tend to get hacked? Hmm. Uh, and the other key was a, a big limiting factor. That Section 1642 authority required that the perpetrator there must be attribution to Russia, China, North Korea, or Iran, the big four. A um, couple of problems here. One, P- public attribution. Well, no, it doesn't no, it does not require public attribution. Okay. So it wouldn't have to be that. Uh, but it has, but it has to be the, I guess, good faith belief of the president and cyber command that that's who is responsible. The problem with that, of course, is well, there's many problems with it. One, those four may be the most persistent uh, problems we face, but they're hardly the only possible ones. Two, uh, you may have actors either uh, not formally part of those governments or acting perhaps in a way that's not obviously attributable to the governments, but may be conducted from within those countries. So insert here all the ransomware crews that can operate out of Russia with, uh, with impunity and who may have various ties to the Russian state, but often, in some cases at least, uh, are not acting under direct uh, uh, direction and control by Moscow. Um, and, and then thirdly, there's this question of, does any of this need to be said at all, given that we're not talking about war powers, at least as the executive branch of both parties typically would define it, since we're not talking about the insertion of troops, we're not talking about the loss of life, destruction, etc. Um, in other words, it, 1642 seemed like an attempt to try to make extra clear what should have been kind of clear already, but in doing it in a very kind of hyper-specific way, naming those four governments, there's kind of an implication that maybe if you didn't have those four governments involved by attribution, maybe Congress didn't mean for Cybercom to be able to act. So maybe they unwittingly uh, created some friction, some legal friction. And even as to the big four, maybe by talking about the government and the people of the United States and not talking about the things that are our critical infrastructure, maybe they created some definitional uncertainty there too. So it feels like in response to 
some of those definitional uncertainties, Congress has again arrived to help clarify things. So I reread what they've now made into law, that if the president finds such an ongoing campaign of attacks in cyberspace by a foreign power, and this time it could be any foreign power, by a foreign power, and it could be against our government or it could be against our critical infrastructure, then Cyber Command is allowed to go forth and conduct operations as long as it follows good old Section 394. And suffice to say that the, the, the real bite of that is that there's some stuff in Section 394 that uh, helps to sort of turn off any element of the covert action oversight structure that otherwise might have come into place and replaces that with reporting to the uh, the House and Senate Armed Services Committees as to the operations. So uh, maybe only super cybersecurity nerds like me would get real <laughs> exercised about this, but I've been writing for decades now about oversight and authorization for things that take place in clandestine and covert settings. And uh, this is just the latest illustration. It's just very hard to articulate it just right. Um, but I think there's no doubt, especially in light of the dribble of stories recently about Cyber Command's apparently pretty effective operations of this kind relating to the Russians, uh, not just in relation to the most recent elections, but also in support of the Ukrainians, that this is really important stuff. And once again, you see Congress in a sort of a non-political way, seemingly trying to help design the mousetrap in a way that will be most effective without surrendering oversight entirely. Okay, so uh, anything else, Steve, in the NDA that jumped out at you? I mean, probably a lot, but it's such a massive statute, and I will confess I have not read it cover to cover. All right, well then, let's move on to this CENTCOM annual report. It was sort of a, it was styled as like one of these like, hey, 2022 was a great year. We want to update you on what we've been up to. I'm sure we all got a lot of those in the mail recently. So CENTCOM sent one out. It was all about the ongoing counter-Islamic state military operations we continue to conduct there. And I think there was just something striking about the, the summation of it as a reminder that despite the, well, let me put it this way. I was thinking about this on the way into the office today. There's, there's a circle that encompasses everything that's actually happening in the world. And then there's a separate circle that encompasses everything that is brought to the attention of the public in a meaningful way because enough media or other sources are talking about it and describing it and kind of making it seem real as an idea. And those circles ideally would overlap perfectly, but of course... The, the circle of everything that's happening in the world is much too big. The circle of what gets talked about and what is on people's minds and therefore what gets believed. Of course, there's multiple circles like that now, sadly. But those circles have to be, by necessity, much smaller. The media and other sources can't talk about everything all the time. Not effectively. Part of what's going on, as you and I have talked about, Steve, on this show many times, is the Biden administration has very smartly figured out that it's a fool's errand uh, politically to talk loudly about actually bringing a formal end right. to the global war on terrorism. And instead, they simply turned down the volume almost to zero. It's uh, barely on, audible. On what they are still doing right. while talking up a little bit the things that they're, you know, when, they're, when there's a withdrawal, when there's a change of policy on this or that, they talk about that a fair amount. But they never say the war is fully over. Although they try to imply that in some settings. They certainly have tried to imply that. Um, in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria to some extent. Um, but the reality is there's a pretty substantial pace of operations. So here are the hard numbers. Um, so right now in, uh, let's talk Syria first and then Iraq. In Syria, we have uh, in the past year, 2022, 108 joint operations between U.S. forces and SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, partners, 108 joint operations. 
Uh, plus 14 solely U.S. conducted operations. 14 solely U.S. conducted operations. And I don't mean like training exercises. Yeah. I mean like uses of yeah. force type operations. So one every three days. Uh, I guess it does turn out to be about that. Um, we have 900 troops on the ground in Syria, by the way, still. Um, there, the result of this, according to CENTCOM, is 466 deaths and 215 captures. Where are those captives? Well, they're in SDF custody or perhaps back in Iraqi custody. We get zero insight publicly about what happens when U.S. and SDF forces go in together, conduct a raid, capture somebody, and bring them out. We don't know a thing about where they end up, what the conditions of confinement are, what the process is for, you know, are they being prosecuted in Iraq? Are they just held? Is it is it law of armed conflict detention authority? Um, what is it? What are the interrogation rules? What's our involvement? We know nothing about it because the public's attention has moved on after an obsessive focus with these topics yes. that ran for about 14 years or so. Yeah. That, that attention is gone, gone. Yep. Casper. Uh, meanwhile in Iraq, 191 U.S. operations militarily in Iraq. By the way, these are only the counter-ISIS operations. This does not count any operations against uh, Iranian-backed forces. There are a couple of those that happen here and there or anything else that might show up like that. 191 counter-ISIS operations in Iraq, all of them conducted on a partnered basis. Those We have 2,500 troops there. These resulted in 159 captures and 220 deaths. Um, and here's, here's a, a final shocking and interesting quote from the statement CENTCOM put out. Quote, there is a literal ISIS army in detention in Iraq and Syria. There are today more than 10,000 ISIS leaders and fighters in detention facilities throughout Syria and more than 20,000 ISIS leaders and fighters in detention facilities in Iraq. So striking. We have massive, massive ongoing I guess, law of war detention slash pseudo-criminal prosecution detention operations going on in theater down there. None of it's U.S. administered. That much is clear. But but is is this a good thing? Is You know, this is the, the inconsequence in some senses of the experience of the United States in the, the first decade and a half of, of the post-9-11 period of discovering that um, us conducting detention – is a big mess. We just don't do it except for the legacy detainees, the couple, the few dozen at Guantanamo. We've really been out of this business now for a decade. Um, but that doesn't mean people aren't detained. It doesn't mean that there's good process. It doesn't mean there's a better solution than what we're currently doing. This may be optimal. Um, but I guess the upshot of all this is that's quite a lot of military activity. It's all duly reported. It's it's all it's all, in my opinion, you know, within the scope of the well-established arguments that are made about the Islamic State being subject to the 2001 AMF. But no one should have this notion that oh, that's all past and that there are there are no more uh, uses of force. There's tons of them, yep. and there's tons of detention. It's just that we don't do the detaining, and at least to some extent, maybe let's let's add those numbers up. Out of about. 300 operations. You have you have 300 joint operations, 14 solo. So we get involved with solo operations only in Syria, where obviously the uh, the sovereignty issues are very different. Um, and obviously we're still pursuing the un unable, unwilling uh, framework in that context. So in my opinion, the global war on terrorism continues apace in, in its hottest theaters of operation, Iraq, Syria. It's just the public doesn't much care anymore and the government doesn't talk about it much. And Congress doesn't ask them to. No, Congress didn't care either. Well, if the public doesn't care, right. Congress is not going to care. That's, I mean, that's just an iron rule. Yep. All right. Well, that was bleak. I, I don't know if it's bleak. It's 
it, it's not so much bleak to me as it is. I mean, it's bleak that, that the Islamic State is still out there in such numbers. And it, it is extremely bleak to realize there's a sense in which the, uh, the, the seemingly massive presence of the Islamic State, it, it dissolves so fast under the weight of the accumulated impact of the counter-ISIS coalition. But it's not like all those people repented and right. disappeared. There's just a huge number of people who are held in detention in various, perhaps not all that sustainable ways in that part of the world. Bleak, I guess. You're right. Yeah. Bleak. Bleak. Um, well, can we can we make it happier by leaving national security behind and turning to the happy yeah, realm but let's of say, frivolity? I, I don't want to sort of, I don't want to let the the release of the January 6th report go unmentioned. Mm. I mean, I think we right, can. Right, right, right. No, no. I mean, I mean we, we didn't really prep it. We can talk about it in our next episode. Well, I'd, like to, I'd like to read or listen to yes. the report. Yes. Um, which is part of why I didn't, I didn't really want it. But But I think it's worth stressing that, like, I think that's a big deal. Um, for sure, and and not just for the sort of headline grabbing stuff about the criminal referrals to DOJ, but actually for some of the narrative that ties together, some of the legal problems it either exposes or confirms that we suspected, some of the reforms it suggests. I well, mean, this is our homework, I guess. I don't yes. know how quickly we'll get to it, but our homework is we need to really engage the document in a serious way. Yes, and then we need to do, need to do just what you said. Yes. Okay. Um, We'll we'll put that marker down and we'll cash it in. Stick a pin in it. It'll be one of our thirty plus episodes in two thousand twenty three. Guaranteed. Wait, wait. So so we should have a bet on this. What is the bet for if what what is the bet for for getting for for the for the over under thirty? Oh no, I, I, this is dangerous because if we're like at twenty nine, suddenly I can't get hold of you. No, no. no I, I think <laughs> I, I think we can allow the listeners to decide whether one of us is acting in bad faith in in, in shirking the the system. We'll, we'll be tweeting about like I you know I just want everybody to know I can't get Steve to return my calls. Please hassle him. Um, Although now that you're the dean, you have you have leverage over me that you would not have had before July first of oh, last no, year. I feel like you know part of the experience of being dean the past six months is realizing like, yeah it's really your colleagues who have leverage over you. <laughs> how, how about um, lunch uh, lunch and or happy hour? Um, you know loser pays deal. All right, maybe we'll make it. A, also with those stakes, it's also not exactly like worth that much. No, it's true. Uh, keeps it keeps it nice and calm. Yeah. If we do this though, maybe we'll invite anyone who's in the listening area uh-huh. to come join us. Oh, um, and the loser's buying everybody lunch. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I'm not taking that risk. I'm not taking that action. Oh, man. All right, frivolity. Uh, okay, let's talk Disney movies. Yes. I have a question for your category. Disney movies that are good for parents, that parents really want to watch. To find the category, as you know, is my favorite part of this. Yes. So so um, I have found a real shift in Disney movies. And I don't, I don't mean Disney as exclusively. Disney, Pixar, sort of like big budget, um, such as they are. Um, children's movies in the last five, ten years where there's more of an effort to write at least some part of the dialogue to appeal to the parental units. I feel like this goes back, it goes back a long way. I say at least as far as Aladdin, where a lot of the things Robin Williams was saying, there's not a chance on earth any kid would understand the reference. But if you're a parent listening... But is that the script or is that that the script or is that Robin Williams? I don't know how much he ad-libbed some of that stuff. But I I always thought that was like a purposeful way to make it more congenial for the parents to enjoy the... But but question, are we only talking about like kind of mainline Disney cartoon movies? I mean, I'm, only talking, I'm just thinking about the ones I've seen, so... Yeah, yeah, just there's a whole... I've come to appreciate it. There's not much that isn't a Disney movie these days. Is Pixar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, but like Disney does a lot of movies that aren't in the sort oh, of indeed. Aladdin, yes. Little Mermaid kind yes, of category. Yes, yes. No, I mean like I mean like Moana and Kanto, like Frozen. Th- yeah, things targeting, targeted for children primarily, yes. but that are great for parents too. Yes. Um, okay, um... 
as opposed to the, as opposed to the the dominant plot line being dead parents, which is a well, that's a, that's there's usually <laughs> that at least a, there's usually at least one of those in any any standard that Disney is a movie. through line through almost all of these movies. Well, it's a through line through a lot of literature uh, targeted for kids. True. Okay, so what is that um, about, by the way? Like, why why like are we trying to build? Are, are we trying to set expectations? I think it solves a plot problem, which is that you have parents who are too engaged. It gets hard for the kid at a very young age to be off on you know, wild and dangerous adventures. And so if you remove the parents, um, you increase oh. the, the room of action for the so we're terror- kid to be a protagonist. So we're terrorizing children for uh, for plot. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> plot service. That's better than the way that, you know, current politics terrorize all of us for, well, without, even, without even giving us a good plot. Don't the stories are just don't stupid get, don't, sometimes. Don't get me started on that. All right. Um, which movies strike you as particularly fun from the parent point of view, even though your kid's the main audience? Yeah, I was thinking. So, um... So I think there's a lot in Encanto um, that actually is pretty clever. Um, stuff that goes past the kid yeah, and yeah, not the yeah, parent. Yeah, Moana has some stuff like that. Um, Frozen 2 more than Frozen 1. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples of this. Well, I, I really think Aladdin's maybe the yeah, all-time Aladdin, great because Aladdin it's be just the, hard yeah, for a kid yes. to catch any of these references. Yes. Right, they're like, ooh, pretty pictures. You're like, oh, that's, that's a lot of innuendo there. Um, Moana, I thought was quite good. I think one of my favorite things. Some of these aren't really uh, things being said that are references for adults to yeah. get, but they're just some. Of it's the casting, yeah. Like the genius of Jermaine, whose last name escapes me, but the guy who plays uh, um, in Moana, the the glittery uh, crab creature. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's um, the guy from Flight Tom of the Concords. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. God, just hearing his voice and realizing who it was made that so delicious. Shiny. Um, well, exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> um, Will Smith in the new Aladdin. Yeah, I mean, well, very consistent, right? Yes. Um, he carries on that tradition yes. pretty well. Yes. Um, Brother, where are you on on Will Smith? Is he is he irredeemable like the Chris Rock thing? He's not in like yay territory, right? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. you know, I you know, I I don't. He's in flawed human being territory. Yeah, he's in flawed human being territory. Yeah, which, fair enough. You know, is where probably more of us are than we care to admit. Well, I would argue that that's where all of us are. <laughs> Some more than others. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> this makes me want to like. Ask about George Santos briefly. Have you been oh, following this craziness? Oh my god! <laughs> so, like ten, like nine years ago, Seth Meyers. There was a whole thing about whether Seth Meyers is Jewish. Okay, right? and it was, and and like he didn't lie about it. Like he wasn't like you know because Seth Meyers. You look at him, you hear his name, you're like oh Jewish, right? Um, okay, I say this as a Jewish person. Okay, right? um, and and he did a whole sort of like monologue about this on his show, um, where the punchline was so I'm Jewish. Oh, Jew dash ish. Like, yeah, yeah. Did, so was there a controversy where he'd sort of like? No, no, no. Yeah. It wasn't a controversy. It was just a, just a thing people were wondering. It was just a. Th- it was a gossipy thing people were wondering, and he just decided that like he'd have some fun with it. Like it was. There was nothing malicious about the Seth Meyers iteration of this. So George Santos. Oh my God. I, I don't even know where to begin with some. Of this. It's really amazing. Um, the education, the employment like history. Each, each, each successive headline, I'm like, is this the onion or is this real? And yeah, it's like yeah. they're all real. But it looks like he's gonna get sworn in. I mean, so, all right, well, let's, let's turn this into a legal question. Yeah, yeah. Under Powell versus McCormick, how could they not? I know. No, I think, I think they're, they're going to. So, uh, uh, listeners, Powell versus McCormick is a 1967 
Seven. Supreme Court decision, um, basically holding that the House, although it retains the power to expel members, right, based on misconduct outside of office, um, it can't refuse to seat members, right, so long as they meet the constitutional qualifications for office. Now, it's possible George Santos lied about those. <laughs> yeah, we may yet find out. Okay, now here's an interesting question. So there was a uh, thing on uh, um, one of the NPR shows this morning where they were talking about all these these things he's done. And the reporter covering the story said, you know, there are a number of prosecutors looking into this, especially possible campaign uh, financing violations, which, you know, wouldn't shock me at all at this point. Um, but then they they repeatedly said, however, just, you know, what we know so far, just like the the, the fraud on the public, yeah. you know, like there, there's, there's no crime yet. And I thought, how could there not be wire fraud? Yeah. How could there right. not be wire fraud, fraud? And mail fraud. And, well, right. And he surely put some of this stuff in the he, mail. This stuff, I'm sure, was on his campaign yeah. website. Absolutely. And he received donations. Yes. How is this not wire fraud? Yes. It is It is as clear cut a case as I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, so it's funny. So the, the con law prof listserv went, in, went down a whole rabbit hole about Alvarez versus the U.S. and the Stolen Valor Act and whether the First Amendment protects your right to lie. Um, and I'm sitting there saying, who cares? Well, like, he's in so much trouble long before we get to lying, like, as a, like, like pr- the, the, the criminalization of lying as such is, li- like, lying, light years yeah, away. Lying as such is not relevant here. Right. The man raised money. Yes. And, over, the and, inter- over the internets. And other things of value. Yes. Like in, I assume, endorsements. Uh, I suppose you might. Can you argue it's a fraud on the government as well to defraud the electoral process itself? That seems like a dangerous path to go down. No, because I think it's the the fundraising fraud. Fraud on the government is like a false claim, right? Like 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 seeking reimbursement for something you didn't actually spend, Mm -hmm. right? Now maybe I mean I don't know if there's any fund. Well, I don't know how the yeah. I can't yeah. imagine there's funny. I, I think the simple path, if, if you're yeah. wire fraud, mail fraud. Yeah, no, he the, the guy clearly ought to be indicted for, Th- for those, those of kinds you, of those John fraud. Grisham fans out there will remember that in the firm. Oh, that's right. right? Multiple instances. Right? The way the way that the way that Tom Cruise right Mitch gets McDeer the, right gets the gets the firm. Uh, the way that Tom that Tom Cruise. Spoiler alert. The way that Tom Cruise gets the firm. Um, uh, sort of you know gets then, the firm without 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 Locke. implicating the mob. Yeah. Right, is to get the. In firm fact, firm. he positions the uh, the crime family as the victims because mm-hmm. they were uh, they were overbilled. They were overbilled. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what? You know what? Um, that movie. First, the book, of course, was a classic summer beach read. The movie was great in part because of the soundtrack. It yes. had this wonderful yes. Memphis yes. soundtrack. It was yes. so good. Yes. But we digress. Do we yes. have any other things to say about Disney movies? Uh, lots, but maybe maybe we've exhausted. All this is to say to, to the to the Venn diagram of our listeners who are also uh, uh, involved in the production of children's movies. Uh, thank you for trying to keep the adults entertained as well. Oh, for sure. Oh, you know what? That's what it was. It was so we went to see at some point earlier this year. We went to see Minions: The Rise of Gru. Mm. And there were actually a ton of like inside baseball adult references in there that were really, really that, that kept me entertained in a movie that was otherwise really, really stupid. Yeah, that was not the best of Despicable no. Me three and Rise of Gru both were a little yeah. weak. Well, I mean, Despicable Me, Despicable Me two, I mean, by, by the time and the Minions the, movies, I mean, by all the three time you're onto the eleventh iteration, it's yeah, like yeah. Uh, that's like the girls went to see uh, the the new Puss in Boots movie. Oh, um, that looks rough. It does. Karen look... said she enjoyed it. But, okay, you know, no, I still no. want to see the new Avatar movie. Maybe I'll go see that with you because I don't think anyone in my house is going to go see that. I assume it's just like the first movie, which is to say completely generic, predictable plot, but lovely visuals. So 
the the I read one thing about it on Slate, which basically said generic, beautiful plot, lovely visuals. the 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 only thing the review said was that whereas the first movie actually had a pretty useful allegory, the second one does not. Yep. No, it's it's easy to imagine that it's like, oh no, somebody's exploiting the environment slash our people, yes. and now we'll all team up this time in the water yes. to defend ourselves again. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, oh, I, we have we reviewed uh, Wakanda Forever. Have you seen it? Yet? I have not seen Wakanda Forever. Have you not Forever. seen that? I would have thought you would. How have I not seen this? I, I, <laughs> who else in my family is going to go see Wakanda Forever with right, me? You should start coming to see these uh, Marvel movies with me. Uh, it's pretty good. I actually think it was real good. I mean, I you know, with all my free time, I would love to go see all of these <laughs> uh, movies with you. Yeah, no, if you're if you're willing to see Avatar, I, listen, I would do. I, I would see either of those movies in either order. Oh, by the way, my brother-in-law said he watched Andor using an Oculus. Uh-huh. So he slapped the Oculus on, and then it was like he was watching it on big screen. Oh, that's cool. I thought cool. that was pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah, you may have to get an Oculus just based on that. Okay, see Supra. I live with three women. I don't get control over almost anything that I get to watch. So that's why you need an Oculus, <laughs> my friend. Um, I mean, you live with four women. so Well, three, since Riley's, you know. Uh, yeah, it's true. I've, I've, I've got one child out, but, uh, you know, we actually, we're pretty good about shared. We mostly want to watch the same stuff. We watched just for fun last night. We rewatched National Treasure. One? The original? The original. Yeah, yeah. We're trying, <laughs> we're trying to decide, do we want to get into this new series mm. that Disney's done? Uh, so, so I, I, I really, I, I'm sorry. I really like National Treasure. Oh, I do one. too. I do too. It's great. Diane fun. Kruger. It's so, it's so fun. John Voight. Yeah, John Voight as as the uh, the yeah, dis, yeah. disillusioned member of the uh, Gates family. Yes. All right. Um, we have separate frivolity because yes. I want to talk about live albums. Yes. And songs. The that, problem is this is going all this is going to reveal is how bad my music knowledge. Well, is. I, I can I can think of one that surely would be your answer to what is just straight up what's the best live album. Surely you would put your vote in for the Indigo Girls. Oh yeah, Twelve Hundred Curfews is 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 is. I mean, but I, this is all skewing toward my interest in music, right? Like, but but yes, but, but I, everyone, everyone's answer should, right? Like, yeah, who cares about people? But, who say, okay, like, so I don't I, like it, but I know. I have the a best couple is. of thoughts for 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 random uh, uh, submissions to the live album. So okay, um, uh, Nirvana um, in New York, right? The is, is it the what? Unplugged? Yeah, Nirvana Unplugged. Yeah, that's a good. You know, the whole Unplugged genre. It's sort of a genre of its own, but I, I will grant you that it's uh, precisely because of how it subverted the whole style and, and impact of Nirvana yes. sonically. Yes. Yeah, and it's so good. Well, because what I loved about it was that like the songs come across so differently yes. and yet no less powerfully. Yeah, yeah. Like, my girl, where did you sleep? Tell me where did you sleep last night? No, you're right about that. I think it actually, that's an excellent choice. I think that the uh, the cover, that, that acoustic version of uh, Man Who Sold the World yes. is, is about as good as, as that yes. format gets. Yes, yes. Um, So Ward and I were at lunch the other day, and, ah. we, were, and we heard something, I think something came on. Oh, I know what it was. They, we were via 313, mm-hmm. great Detroit-style pizza. <laughs> if you told me, you shouldn't let me guess, because that's, that's where Ward goes to lunch. So... On, on the, uh, the the music you could hear in the background, it was Cheap Tricks, I Want You to Want Me, but yeah. it wasn't the good version, which is the live version. Mm-hmm. It was the original studio album version, which is much slower and calmer and no good. 
I'm going to go one step further. I, I actually think, so this should be a separate frivolity we do another time, which is songs, the, the covers of which are better than the original. That, so that's exactly the category. So Ward suggested, he's like, you know, this is an interesting question. What are the best examples? Because that's an example of a song that's unquestionably better live, live at Budokan. Right? But also, I think, better covered. Like the, so oh, cover, cover. Oh, you're talking no, about like letter, you're going letters I'll to go Cleo. I'm going letters to Cleo. Okay, well, I will not accept that the letters to Cleo version is better than the live Cheap Trick version, okay, which fine. brought it to life. However, I will agree that it's really good. Okay. How about the, Okay, but how about this? Um, the Indigo Girls cover of Romeo and Juliet versus Dire Straits. Um, oh, I can't say that it's better than okay. the Mark Knopfler version, but I'll agree that their version's real good. But but the uh, I can't go against okay, Mark Knopfler on that. Fair enough. That's sort of like you know this pizza place versus that pizza place. They're just two different. Uh, I got another one for you. All right. Tori Amos doing I don't like Mondays versus Boomtown Rats. Mm, I don't have an opinion on that. I'm going to have to go listen to that. So the Tori Amos I don't like Monday is, is something uh, West Wing fans discover because it's a whole, there's a whole, there's a whole thing there. Yes. Okay, that's interesting. And so Boomtown Rats, that was Bob Geldof's band. Yeah, uh-huh. Interesting. Uh-huh. Well, um, the category I was thinking. Sorry. I, 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 no, no, I, I, I like this. this. Covers that are better. That's next week's frivolity. <laughs> Listeners, join in. Covers that are better than the original. Mm-hmm. Um, the category that Ward had suggested was uh, live version, so the same band, yeah. the studio yeah. version versus the live version that yeah. gets on like an album, where the live version's better. And I thought, uh, want you to want me for sure. I think that the famous live version of Leonard Skinner doing Freebird, you know, play it pretty for Atlanta, yeah. is better by a little bit than the original. Um, there's Peter Frampton, Do You Feel Like I Do. Everybody only knows the live version. That's that's the best. Um, Bridge Over Troubled Water, Simon and Garfunkel. Mm, that's an interesting choice. You need like the you need the like the loud crowd noise. Yeah, yeah. They're probably you know, there's also this phenomenon of the live album being sort of a seventies, eighties yes. kind of thing. Yes. Um, most of the examples I think of I know it's not just because of when I came of age musically, it's also because you just don't have I mean, I, real I, iconic live I'm albums. Thinking of like, I'm thinking of a whole bunch of like Billy Joel and Elton John songs that are good on the albums, but that, that are good on the studio album, but that are like exceptional live. There's probably, I will say the kinks fall in this category. Yeah. So two, two really all-time rock and roll classics, Lola and All Day, All the Night. They're both obviously like iconic from their original kind of uh, lower tech versions. Yes. And then later on in the 80s, the kinks uh, had an album called One for the Road and the version of Lola and all day and all the night, just are they're just great. Of course, so Lola leads me to also put in a pitch for my favorite Weird Al song of all time. <laughs> Which one's that? Yoda. Oh, yo 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 Yoda. <laughs> uh, met them in a swamp down in Dago. Dago <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm going to repitch a podcast that I love so much. I've mentioned before, Strong Songs with Kirk Hamilton. It is it is so unbelievably good. Each episode. Most episodes break down a single song and go really into depth. And um, in October this past year, he did a deep dive into one of his own childhood favorites. He did Weird Al's The Biggest Ball of Twine in Minnesota. <laughs> and and I and let me tell you, I, I was on a long walk with the dog. Yeah. And I listened to the whole thing. And I was against my you know sort of instincts. I was like, I don't care about Weird Al. Let me tell you, that is worth a listen. It is so enjoyable. And it will impress you both with Mr. Hamilton and Mr. Yankovic. Yeah, we're out. I mean, we're out a genius, man. I mean, oh, he is. he's just a genius. 
Are you going to watch the Weird Al movie? I am. I don't think I'm going to. I I am the kind of person who knew like a surgeon before I knew like a virgin. Like that was my (laughs) my my introduction to music as a sweet summer child of the mid 1980s was Weird Al before Madonna or Michael Jackson. So fat before bad, Um, (laughs) eat it before beat it. Um, Oh, that's pretty. I think I'm a clone now versus I think I'm alone now. Oh my god. Uh, the song is just six words long. Versus... Mama, my Bologna. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you can just, like, so no, good. It's all so great. Thank, so good. thank you, Weird Al, for all the happiness you brought us. Seriously. All right, that probably wraps it up. Oh, man. Um, all right. Uh, we are going to try this whole, like, more regular thing. But Bobby currently has us planned to schedule next to, to record next Tuesday. Uh January 10th, yeah, supposedly. A weekly episode. I mean, the show, I, hey, this show could become a weekly podcast. <laughs> I will believe that when I see it. Um, all right. He is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. Uh, Happy New Year, everybody, and we'll see how this goes. Adios.